Well, greetings, Grace Life. Uh, it's Pastor Mike here. It's wonderful to be with you behind a pulpit. I have uh, missed you. Uh, I know that you have missed uh, gathering together and hearing preaching from God's Word, and we're looking forward to, to gathering virtually together this Sunday evening for the, the Q&A that Phil and I are doing. Remember to uh, join us in that Facebook Live group, uh, or Facebook group for a Facebook Live post. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, uh, get one of those emails from the Grace Life Prayer Bulletin or log on to Facebook and send me a friend request, and uh, we'll be sure to connect with you so that we can uh, remain connected to one another during this time where we have to be apart. Um, but a joy for me to open the Word of God to you and, and uh, want to pray for our time uh, in the Scriptures. Father, we do uh, thank you for these days, even though they are difficult and uncertain. We give you praise as the, the Lord of all things, who, uh, th- this, who has not been surprised by this, who indeed has ordained, you have ordained all these things from the, before the foundation of the world, and you promise that they are intentionally unto your own glory and our good, and we pray that you would comfort your people in the midst of these uh, difficult and different circumstances. Help us to learn the lessons of sanctification that uh, you intend to teach us. Help us to be a light to those who are yet in darkness, who might be considering these things, uh, these spiritual things, matters of life and death more, uh, given all that's going on. And above all, we pray that you would get what you are worthy of in your people, uh, and even in our time together now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the midst of the global pandemic of the coronavirus, we find ourselves in a time when it is easy to worry. The world is in a panic, and in some sense, with good reason. I mean, there is a dangerous virus with no known cure or or proven treatment spreading across the globe at an exponential pace. With each passing day, we hear of disproportionate increases in the death toll. We hear of new reports of severity of symptoms. We hear new reports of younger and healthier people contracting the disease and and suffering severe complications from it. You know, the other day I came across a Facebook post from an old college friend of mine, an unbeliever, and it was uh, sobering in, in the simplicity of this comment. She just very honestly confessed, okay, I'm getting scared now. That's not unreasonable. What if I get sick? What if my spouse or my kids get sick? My parents or my grandparents, they fall into the at-risk category. Some of them are older and, and have underlying conditions that predispose them to complications from all of this. What if, what if we're one of the unfortunate ones who wind up sequestered in a hospital room, prohibited from seeing friends and family in person, unable to breathe without a ventilator? And, and what, if that's, what if that's the rest of my life? And it's not only the world that's in a panic. The church is also facing significant temptation to be anxious during this time. On top of what I just mentioned, we're all grounded, right? We're all locked down and sheltering in place, trying our best not to come within six feet of another human being. School is canceled. The kids are trying to do distance education for the rest of the school year. 
Many adults are, are working from home. That's if they can work at all. The gyms are closed. The beaches are closed. The hiking trails are closed. Restaurants are takeout only. Going to the grocery store can feel like an episode of Survivor combined with amusement park length lines. We're away from our church family. We're away from our fellowship groups. We're away from our Bible studies. We're away from the ministries that we serve in. Governors are threatening to permanently close churches who do decide to gather at this time, sparking serious concerns about governmental overreach and religious liberty. And perhaps worst of all, we just don't know when anything is going to get back to normal. The indefiniteness and the uncertainty of all of this, the fear of the unknown, coupled with our own helplessness, is a cause for anxiety. The overwhelming majority of us are going to survive the coronavirus. But with virtually the entire American economy shut down, potentially for months, it's not going to be easy for the economy to just pick back up where it left off. I mean, businesses have already closed down because they're unable to recoup their losses. People have lost their jobs. Even though so many of us will make it, what's waiting for us on the other end of this thing? We're living in a time when it is easy to worry. But in the face of all of those concerns, most of them legitimate concerns about our family's health and well-being, concerns that seem so basic and so foundational to the very fabric of our lives, the Word of God cuts entirely across the grain of all of that and has the audacity to command us with utter simplicity, to be anxious for nothing. Say, well, no, yeah, I understand that's the ideal, but this is a pandemic. I mean, surely God understands. No, be anxious for nothing. No, no, I mean, I get it. Don't sweat the small stuff, but this, no. Be anxious for nothing. But God's word doesn't only lay this duty upon our shoulders. It also strengthens our hands to perform this duty by telling us how. While the world literally drives itself crazy looking for the cure for anxiety, whether in positive thinking or in the opinions of experts and talking heads on TV, in prescription medication, the cure for anxiety has been clearly prescribed in a 2,000-year-old publication that the life coaches and the wellness professionals and the gurus and the psychiatrists have managed to overlook. Here, in the pages of Scripture, in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church of Philippi, we find the antidote for anxiety and the prescription for peace, even in a pandemic. And it comes in the context of Paul's remarks on the pursuit of spiritual stability. In the opening verse of Philippians chapter 4, Paul exhorts the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And this is something that we want. We want to be a steadfast church. As followers of Jesus, we want to be a stable people. 
We don't want to be shaken and thrown about by every false teaching or every persecution or every interpersonal conflict with one another or every severe temptation or every trying affliction. We want to stand. And this passage tells us how. Verses 2 and 3 tell us that one means of spiritual stability is unity. If we're going to stand as a church, we must be diligently devoted to preserving the unity in the body of Christ, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace amidst our members. Verse 4 tells us a second means of that stability is joy. A steadfast church relentlessly pursues their joy in Christ. When we're satisfied in Christ, the one who never leaves us and never forsakes us, we won't be tempted to be shaken by uncertain and volatile circumstances. These things change, but Christ doesn't change and he's always with us. And if our joy is in him, then our joy doesn't change. Verse five speaks of gentleness. When the people of God devote themselves to unity by pursuing their joy in Christ, they become free to deal gently with one another. And that makes for a steadfast church. And then in verses 6 and 7, we find a fourth means of cultivating spiritual stability. If we're going to stand firm in the Lord, we must also battle all forms of anxiety by means of thankful prayer. We must battle all forms of anxiety by means of thankful prayer. Let's look at our text. Paul writes, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's difficult to overstate the importance of mortifying the sin of anxiety in the Christian life. And that's because anxiety is something of a gateway sin. Many other sins spring from anxiety. Anxiety about others' opinions of you can lead to lying to save face. Anxiety about finances leads to coveting and greed and stinginess and even theft Anxiety about health can make you impatient and irritable and abrasive. If if anxiety could be severed at its root, so many other sins would wither. So much is that the case that Martin Lloyd-Jones regards it as a test of the genuineness of our faith in Christ. He writes, perhaps nothing provides such a thorough test of our faith and of our whole Christian position as just this matter. It is one thing to say that you subscribe to the Christian faith. It's one thing, having read your Bible and abstracted its doctrine, to say, yes, I believe all that. It is the faith by which I live. It's another thing to live by it. He goes on. It's a subtle and delicate test of our position because it's such an essentially practical test. It's far removed from the realm of mere theory. You are in the position, Lloyd-Jones says. You are in the situation. These things are happening to you. And the question is, what is your faith worth at that point? Does it differentiate you from people who have no faith? End quote. 
Grace Life, we want to be a people who answers yes to those questions. Surely we want to be able to say, yes, my faith in Christ and my faith in his promises is a living and breathing reality that protects me from anxiety in the most trying of circumstances in a way that is manifestly different from those who have no faith. And so we must be equipped to engage in this battle against anxiety. We must be equipped to engage in this battle against the unbelief from which anxiety springs. And we'll look to this text of God's word to equip us as we examine what Paul has to say about the antidote for anxiety and the prescription for peace. We'll outline our thoughts according to three components Uh, that make up this text. First, we have the prohibition against anxiety in the first part of verse 6. Second, we have the prescription for thankful prayer in the second half of verse 6. And then third, the promise of God's peace in verse 7. The prohibition, the prescription, and the promise. First, let's consider the prohibition. Verse 6 says plainly, Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Now, in order to understand the nature of this prohibition, uh, what precisely it is that we're to avoid at all costs, we've got to understand first what Paul does not mean by this command. In the first place, he's not sanctioning an an apathetic laziness or a, a whimsical foolishness in which a person abandons all diligent planning for the future. Proverbs says that the plans of the diligent succeed says that an idle man will suffer hunger. And so to be anxious for nothing doesn't mean to be dispossessed of all responsible concern or or to be careless. And so those who imagine that it's somehow a display of great faith to sit around and do nothing to improve their circumstances while they wait on the Lord or while they uh, heedlessly and foolishly put themselves in positions to be affected by this virus in an adverse way because, well, God is sovereign and I'm immortal until his purposes for me are done. You've misunderstood the Bible's teaching on this point. We pray and we trust the sovereignty of God as we plan, not as a substitute for making plans and taking precautions. Neither is Paul prohibiting all kinds of genuine concern, even troubling concern in light of realistically fearful circumstances. I mean, in chapter 2 of this same letter, in verse 20, Paul uses this very word for anxiety when he describes Timothy's virtue. He says, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned, same word, for your welfare. And so the compassionate and sympathetic concern for the spiritual needs of fellow believers is a virtue. Paul uses this same term in 1 Corinthians 12, 25, where he says that God has given spiritual gifts to the church in, in the various members so that we would care for one another. We would care. We would have a, an anxious concern for one's well-being. And Paul himself, being a good pastor, spoke of the daily pressure of concern that he had for all the churches in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, And so the Christian who feels no real burden for the sanctification and growth of his fellow believers, who's not anxious in some sense to meet the needs of his brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, who's not concerned for the health of the church, is derelict in his duty. 
So Paul is not forbidding these kinds of genuine, responsible concerns for for the people and affairs entrusted into one's stewardship. The prohibition to be anxious for nothing speaks rather of what we might naturally and normally understand as anxiety. Paul is forbidding fretfulness, the excessive kind of worry, the, the harassing, wearying care that troubles the soul, that distracts the mind, and that paralyzes the hands so that duties are neglected. Let me say that again. What he's forbidding is fretfulness, excessive worry, the harassing, wearying care that troubles the soul, distracts the mind, and paralyzes the hands such that duties are neglected. This is the anxiety that we must banish from our lives. It's that general spirit of worry that gets hold of our imagination and says things like, well, well, sure, everything's okay now, but, but what if this happens? And, and what if that leads to that? And then we'll be in this condition and, and we'll have no way to get out of it. And Paul's saying that that kind of frenzied anxiety arising from the tyranny of our circumstances has no place in the heart of a Christian. And this teaching is simply an echo of the teaching of Jesus himself. Turn with me to, to Matthew chapter 6, the, past, the passage that Pastor John led us in so faithfully in our first week of lockdown. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the declaration from the king himself about what it meant to be a subject in his kingdom, Jesus spends 10 whole verses, which is a, a large chunk proportionally to this sermon, instructing his disciples on banishing anxiety from their lives. So look with me in Matthew 6, verse 25. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried or do not be anxious, same word, about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will, what, will, what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. See, being anxious about these things, that's a mark of the pagans. The Gentiles are worried about these things because they don't have a heavenly father who cares for them, who knows their needs and who is sovereign to meet every one of their needs. But you do, Jesus says. And so when he laments, oh, you of little faith, 
He's saying that anxiety stems from a failure to trust in God's caring provision for his children. See, it's not just worrying as if this was some minor thing. It's a failure to believe in the promises of God. Worrying is unbelief. And so we are commanded to be anxious for nothing because we have a heavenly father who is sovereign over everything down to the making sure of the the birds, that the birds find food and the flowers grow beautifully. The prohibition back in Philippians four is exhaustive. Be anxious for nothing. No matter what combination of difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in, we are not to indulge feelings of sinful anxiety. Say, easy for you to say, Mike. I'm not the ones who wrote, I'm not the one who wrote this. Paul wrote this command. And he wasn't sipping cocktails by the pool when he wrote it. He was under house arrest. Something that Some of us might be able to relate to a little bit better in these past few weeks. But Paul's house arrest wasn't sheltering in place. But you can go to Costco if you really need something, or you can take out Chick-fil-A if if you get hungry. Paul had been chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day for much of the past two years. And he was awaiting his trial before a psychopath who would decide whether or not to execute him. So the great expositor Alexander McLaren said this, it's easy for prosperous people who have nothing to trouble them to give good advices to suffering hearts. And these are generally as futile as they are easy. But who is he who here said to the church at Philippi, be anxious for nothing? A prisoner in a Roman prison. And when Rome fixed its claws, it did not usually let go without drawing blood. Everything in the future was entirely dark and uncertain. It was this man, with all the pressure of personal sorrows weighing upon him, who, in the very crisis of his life, turned to his brethren in Philippi, who had far fewer causes of anxiety than he had, and cheerfully bade them to be anxious for nothing. And when the Philippians considered these truths, where Paul was, what he was facing as he wrote this, I believe they were strengthened all the more to battle every inkling of anxiety that had sought to creep within their hearts. Certainly, if he can be anxious for nothing, we can be anxious for nothing. We have the same God. We have the same Christ. We have the same promises. And that needs to have the same effect on us, Grace Life. It's a command from the word of God that is just as binding as you shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. But you say, Mike, how can Paul say that in this fallen world, in in this world plagued with untreatable diseases and healthcare shortages and collapsing economies and job layoffs and increased cost of living and the necessity of providing for a family. What did Paul know about that? And here, friends, you need to recall the great doctrine of biblical inspiration. Yes, it was Paul who gave this command, but it wasn't only Paul who gave this command. 
Paul is the human author of the epistle to the Philippians, but the triune God himself is its divine author. And surely our God knows about these circumstances. Surely these concerns have not escaped the consideration of our perfectly wise, infinitely compassionate God. And in the face of all those very real concerns, in full consciousness of all the trials of life in a broken world, even the very trials that we are presently facing, our infinitely wise God has so superintended the pen of the Apostle Paul as to command us himself, be anxious for nothing. I'm going to get a drink of water. What's that? Yeah, I'd like that. Okay. You say, but how can that be? How in the world can we be expected to be anxious for nothing? That brings us to our second point. Number one, the prohibition. Number two, the prescription. The prescription. Look again with me at verse six. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So here we learn that the way to be anxious for nothing is to pray about everything. The way to be anxious for nothing is to pray for everything. See, the reason that we're tempted to become sinfully anxious in various circumstances of life is because in one form or another, we believe that our needs will go unmet. As much as we might try to be, we know that we are not in control of everything in our lives. And in an attempt to control the things we can't control, we worry about them. I will think about every possible permutation for these circumstances until my mind fully comprehends it. It gives the illusion of control. I can't change anything, but maybe I can think about it so upside down, backwards and forwards that I'll have covered every base and I've, I've covered every objection. I'll know what, what to do, what I plan to do in every circumstance. Then I'll be in control. But Paul teaches us in this text that the antidote for anxiety comes not by retreating within our own minds in search of the illusion of control, but from presenting our petitions to the sovereign God of the universe who actually is in control of everything in our lives and who has promised Philippians 4.19 to supply all our needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The very things that would tempt us to be anxious These very things we are to take before the throne of grace in prayer. The contrastive parallelism is very apparent. Look at the text. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. Let your request be made known to God. So just as the prohibition was exhaustive, so also is the prescription exhaustive in 
all the situations and circumstances of life that would be the occasion for sinful anxiety. We are to turn these troubles into specific requests that we make of our Father who delights to give good gifts to his children, Matthew 7, 11, who causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28, and whose good pleasure, Jesus says, is to give you the kingdom, Luke 12, 32. John Calvin said, in the midst of all our trials, quote, this is our consolation, this our solace, to disburden in the bosom of God everything that harasses us. What a beautiful picture. To run into our Father's arms, to lay our head upon His chest, and to unload upon God every burden that harasses us. Or in the language of 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Well, back in Philippians 4, notice the triple emphasis in verse 6. Paul piles three words for prayer, one right on top of the other. He speaks of prayer, supplication, and requests. And so there can be no mistaking his point. The antidote for anxiety is the kind of petitionary prayer that makes specific requests of our Heavenly Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. This prayer that is the pathway to peace is not some sort of semi-conscious meditative state that some people call prayer. You know, you sit Indian style on the floor and you, you know, you do the home kind of a thing. That's not the prayer that Paul is calling us to. It's not a turning in on yourself and achieving some sort of heightened state of consciousness or transcendental oneness with some generic higher power. That's paganism. That's Eastern mysticism baptized in the polluted waters of Western narcissism. And it materializes in authors like Tony Robbins and Oprah Winfrey and and Joel Osteen and a host of other life coaches coming in the name of, of spiritual enlightenment. But peace is not to be found within ourselves you think that would be somewhat self-evident, actually. The whole reason you're looking for peace is because you discern its absence in yourself. Inside of you is where the anxiety is. That's why you're looking for peace. So looking for peace by pressing more deeply into the caverns of your own sinful heart is like pressing further into a cave in search of light or, or further into the ocean in search of dry land. See, the world flatters itself into the delusion that our problems are outside of us and that the solution is inside of us. But Scripture tells us that our problems are inside of us and the solution is outside of us. And so Paul tells us that we have to go outside of ourselves to God. He requires that we make these specific requests known to God or in the presence of God. This, is the, this phrase is proston theon in the Greek. It's the same phrase that is used in John 1, 1 that speaks of Jesus, John 1, 1 to 3, that speaks of Jesus as the word being with God in his presence. 
So it, it speaks of communion. It speaks of intimate personal relationship, even between the Father and the Son from all eternity. And so we're commanded to go to the presence of God outside of the presence of only ourselves. The psalmist says in Psalm 94, 19, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Not when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, I go even further within myself looking for peace that's not there. But when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations, Father, they delight my soul. The cure for anxiety is the sweet, divine comfort of our heavenly Father who ministers that to us as we commune with him in prayer. So the cure for anxiety will not be found within ourselves. Anxiety over the coronavirus will not be quelled by assuring one another that you got this. I see that all over the place. Think positive. You got this. The American spirit is going to defeat this. What a pitiful delusion. This is one of those instances where people are looking at themselves in the mirror and they're lying straight to their own faces hoping that they can deaden their conscience enough and pacify their emotions enough by retreating from reality. Let me tell you something. You do not got this. In and of yourself, you are powerless in the face of this disease. That's precisely why you're worried. There's no peace to be found within ourselves. We will find peace only as we look away from ourselves and outside of ourselves to the all-powerful, all-sufficient God who works all things after the counsel of his own will. And this also implies, briefly, that we ought not to pray in vague generalities for God to relieve our anxieties. Sometimes we have the tendency to be vague in our prayers. We say things like, well, Lord, we pray for Mike. And then we just sort of stop right there and move on to the next thing. Well, what do you pray for, Mike? I mean, ask for something specific. That's the kind of thing that Paul's getting at with these words for prayer in this text. Requests, prayer, supplication. These have the ideas of making specific requests. So mark it. The, the cure for anxiety is not in hurried, quick, microwave requests for a generic peace or calm. Those might be necessary at some times, right? So sometimes those are all that we can manage. Lord Jesus, help, help, peace, settle me, calm, please, right? But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's saying that the cure for anxiety is in the quiet submission of an undivided heart that takes specific cares and turns them into specific prayers. I'll say that again. It's in the quiet submission of an undivided heart that takes specific cares and turns them into specific prayers. Lord, I'm worried about getting sick and dying from this virus. I am. I confess it. But your word tells us that you ordained all the days of my life from before the foundation of the world, before I was even existed, you tell me that nothing can harm me apart from your sovereign will. You tell me that you love me and that you are working all things for my good. And ultimately, you tell me that it's, it's far better to depart from this life anyway and be with Christ in heaven. 
Father, help me to trust the promises of your word. Help me to believe what I say I believe and help me to live and think and feel in concert, in consistent, uh, consistently with what I know and believe to be true. Paul says we are to, to let these specific requests be made known to God. It's actually a funny way to put it when you think about it, to make your requests known to God. I mean, Paul's point in saying that is, is obviously not to suggest that we need to inform God of something that he doesn't already know. We read the passage in Matthew 6, 32, where Jesus says, the very reason that we ought not to be anxious about our daily necessities is because, quote, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. A few verses earlier than that, in Matthew 6, verse 8, he taught his disciples not to pray with meaningless repetition precisely because your father knows what you need before you ask him. So why does Paul speak this way in Philippians 4, 6? Because when the people of God lay out all of our requests before him in prayer, we are casting all our anxieties, all our cares on him as Peter says. It's in this full disclosure of our neediness and our helplessness that we express our complete and utter dependence upon him for our welfare. And at the same time as that we're expressing confident trust in him to provide for us, we're openly acknowledging, Lord, I find myself in a a set of circumstances that I just cannot navigate on my own. I'm entirely insufficient within myself to do a thing about them. But in the depth of my need, I call out to you who I know is perfectly, you who are perfectly sufficient in precisely the ways that I'm insufficient. You who are, are, are perfectly weak, strong when I am weak. When I am helpless, where I am helpless, you are powerful. And because you are the only one Sufficient to supply my need, I come to you and ask for your grace and for your peace. See how that glorifies God? When we call upon him in the day of trouble, looking to him as our all-powerful deliverer and provider, our need magnifies his sufficiency to meet that need. And so, because he delights to display his glory as deliverer, he delights to deliver us. We magnify his provision simply by being needy and calling out to him when we discover that need. How glorious is that? How kind of God, how compassionate of God to set things up that way that we can do our duty of glorifying him simply by being needy and banking on his provision and power. And one final thought as we consider this prescription for peace, this prayer and supplication in which we're to make our requests known to God is to be characterized in its entirety by thanksgiving. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So thanksgiving is absolutely essential to the kind of prayer that cures anxiety. In fact, it's so essential that one commentator said prayer without thanksgiving is like a bird without wings. Such a prayer cannot rise to heaven and can find no acceptance with God. Now, why is that so? 
Well, first of all, bathing your prayers for peace in thanksgiving ensures that you're not doubting or questioning or blaming God in your prayers. I mean, in the midst of trying and difficult circumstances, we can be tempted to complain to God about our circumstances and, and rebelliously demand him to change them. You know, God, what are you doing? Come on. It's been weeks. I've got to get back to work. I need to pay my bills. I'm praying to you like you command me to pray. What are you waiting for? Well, that's not the kind of prayer that avails with God for peace. As we come to him in humility, casting ourselves in, in utter dependence on him, making our requests with thanksgiving requires that we have subjected our desires to his perfect will. This thanksgiving is not merely an advanced thank you for his eventually answering your requests like, God, please take care of my finances and thank you in advance. No, not at all. This thanksgiving is actually acknowledging the absolute sovereignty of God, that even in the difficult circumstances that you face here in life, they are gifts. It's acknowledging that they are gifts of God's good providence. Circumstances in which he is in complete, over which he is in complete control. Follow me here. If you're thanking God for everything, like it says in this text, especially for the circumstances that tempt you to be anxious, it means that you're already calling to your own mind the reality that God is the providential Lord of your circumstances, the one who ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Right? I mean, you don't thank somebody for something who had no part in bringing it about. Say so-and-so, hey, thanks for that gift. Well, I didn't get you anything. Why are you thanking me? Right? You thank somebody because they had something to do with bringing it about. You see, there is a rock-solid, robust theology of the sovereignty of God in that little phrase with thanksgiving. See, God is not just out there somewhere, kind, kind of in control of everything. He, he's keeping his eye on, on certain things, but you know, not everything is going the way that he, like, he would like it to go. You know, he's going to make sure it doesn't get too out of hand. No. This is not, God's sovereignty is not a, a mere passive allowance of bad things into your life. This is the God who ordains by the most wise and holy counsel of his will whatsoever comes to pass. And by grounding your mind in the truth of his sovereignty, you're already on the path to peace. Why? Because this sovereign God is also the wise and the loving God who is unwavering in his commitment to his glory and your joy. If he is the one who is in control of your circumstances, and if he, as the perfect father, knows how to give good gifts to his children, then there is nothing to be anxious about. If he is the one with, without whom the coronavirus could not survive, that unless he was giving the word, th these molecules and atoms would dissolve immediately. If he was not sovereign over the beating of your, it, it, he, it, he is the one who is sovereign over the beating of your heart and the breathing of your lungs He's the one sovereign and in control over the availability of hospital space and, and uh, ventilators and personnel and cures and antibiotics and medications. If he's the one who's sovereign over all those things, then there's nothing to be anxious about. 
So Pastor John puts it helpfully in his commentary on this passage. He writes, people become worried, anxious, and fearful because they do not trust in God's wisdom, power, or goodness. Thankful prayer brings release from fear and worry because it affirms God's sovereign control over every circumstance and that his purpose is the believer's good. And so Spurgeon models this kind of thankful prayer that is the antidote to anxiety. He says, Lord, I am poor. Let me bless you for my poverty. And then, O Lord, will you not supply all my needs? That's the way to pray, Spurgeon says. Lord, I am ill. I bless you for this affliction, for I am sure that it means some good thing to me. Now, be pleased to heal me, I beseech you. Lord, I am in a great trouble, but I praise you for the trouble, for I know that it contains a blessing, though the envelope is black-edged. Lord, help me through my trouble. Martin Luther put it as helpfully as he put it, it's at his, at, try that again. Martin Luther put it as helpfully as he put it succinctly when he said, pray and let God worry. Pray and let God worry. And as we take heed to this prescription for thankful prayer, as we let our requests be made known to God with thanksgiving, we will receive the glorious promise that is presented to us in verse seven. We've seen the prohibition, be anxious for nothing. We've seen the prescription, be prayerful in everything. And now we come to the promise. Look with me at verse seven. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The sure and tested result of diligently battling all forms of anxiety by means of thankful prayer is that the peace of God himself will reign supreme in the hearts and the minds of his people. Now, notice what the text does not say. Paul does not say, in everything let your requests be made known to God, and God will grant all your requests, summarily removing you from every anxiety-producing situation in your life. No, he says, as you humbly and faithfully call out to God for rescue, trusting him in his sovereignty to bring to you what is best, even in the midst of your trying circumstances, then the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds from sinful anxiety. You see, this is not a promise that God will change our circumstances. Praise his name that the gospel goes so much deeper than that. This is a promise that God will change us. That he will give grace to us to sanctify us in the midst of these trials. To help us to grow in the way that these trials mean for us to grow. And that he will keep us preserved to the end, even in the midst of trouble. Do not fear. Don't anxiously look about you. Even though there's the fiery trial, my right hand will uphold you. We sing about that passage in Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. Not, I'll take you out of the fire so that you'll never be refined, but I will keep you in the fire. I will give you grace in the midst of trouble. 
That is such a better promise than the ease and the comfort that doesn't push us closer to Christ. I've said it before, grace is so much more glorious a gift than ease. Grace is so much more glorious a gift than ease. Why? Because Christ is not enjoyed most deeply where he's needed the least. Christ is enjoyed most deeply where he is needed the most. And so, so Spurgeon says, I, I've learned to kiss the wave that thrusts me against the rock of ages. The waves, the tumultuous sea, that can be unnerving. Those are trials that we don't want to, we don't want to be lost at sea, tossed to and fro by every wave. But if that wave thrusts us upon the rock of ages, the rock of Christ, I'll take that wave. I'll endure under this wave. I will fight in this wave. And so your purpose, friends, is not to eliminate your trials. It's not to escape this pandemic at all costs. Your purpose is to trust God in the trials and experience the peace that he promises in the midst of the pandemic. Let's learn more about this peace, which we're so bountifully promised here. First, we see that it's a divine peace. It is the peace of God. This peace of God has its origin in the God of peace, which is the name that Paul ascribes to God in verse nine of Philippians chapter four, the God of peace. This is the the peace that characterizes God himself. This is the peace that God himself possesses. God has no anxieties. God has no worries. He is infinitely happy. He is infinitely joyful. He is infinitely peaceful. Spurgeon calls this peace of God the unruffled serenity of the infinitely happy God, the eternal composure of the absolutely well-contented God. This, says Paul, shall possess your heart and your mind. But it's not only the peace that characterizes God, it's the peace that God gives. It's the peace that comes from God. It is that inward tranquility of the soul that is grounded in the presence and in the promises of God. One commentator said, peace is the smile of God reflected on the soul of the believer. It's the heart's calm after Calvary's storm. This is the peace that God gives. Lord Jesus told the disciples in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. I don't give and take it away. I don't give without sufficient ground. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. I have given you my peace. The prophet prays in Isaiah 26, three, the steadfastness, the sorry, the steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. So this is a divine peace. It is, it is characterized by God and it is a gift from God to us as well. Secondly, it is a supra rational peace, not an irrational peace, but a supra rational peace. It doesn't violate reason, but it surely transcends reason. Look again at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, surpasses all comprehension. This peace transcends 
all human intellectual powers and capabilities of understanding. And this means more than just that this piece is so wonderful that you can't even fathom it. I mean, it means that, but it's so much more than that. This supra-rational character of the peace of God is referring to the fact that this world has absolutely no natural explanation for it. Here you are, a blood-bought disciple of the, uh, uh, and follower of Christ, living in the same fallen world, with the same disappointments, with the same broken relationships, and the same virus permeating the globe that all the unbelievers you come into contact live in. That's the same world. And in the midst of the deadlines and the kids and the bills and the economy and the political unrest, in the midst of all the storms of this life, here you are, calm, peaceful, even joyful. And the world looks at you and it scratches its head and asks with amazement, I mean, how can you be so calm with everything that you've got going on? I don't understand it. And it's then that you shine the light of the gospel and say what you're seeing is the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, guarding my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you more about that. Well, let me tell you more about it. This peace is a divine peace, number one. It is a supra-rational peace, number two. And thirdly, it is a guarding peace, a guarding peace. This peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And this word guard is a vivid military term that referred to a garrison, to a detachment of soldiers who would stand guard over a city and protect it from attack. This would have been a familiar figure for the Philippians who were living in a Roman colony. All throughout the Roman Empire, there were garrisons stationed precisely in order to protect the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome. And so Paul says, just as the Roman soldiers stand together to form a garrison of protection around the walls of this city in order to keep the peace, so will the God of peace give you the peace of God that forms a garrison around your hearts and your minds that will protect you from the pressures and the anxieties that would press upon you. Say, why your hearts and minds? This is, a way, this is a way of referring to the whole inner person, both the thoughts of the mind and the affections and dispositions of the heart. Now, I, I find this, this comment, to be extremely valuable insight into God's own view of the psychology of anxiety. Why would Paul say the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds? Why wouldn't he say that it would guard our neurons and amygdalas? Why wouldn't he say that it would guard our hormones and neurotransmitters? I'm being a tad facetious, but the truth is the same. Paul identifies anxiety here as an issue fundamentally of the heart and mind. At its root, anxiety is a spiritual problem. Now, there might be physical factors that accompany it, and, and especially physical factors that result from it, as research would indicate. But modern psychiatry's attempt to classify anxiety as a disease is starkly at odds with the implications of this verse. The cure for anxiety is not merely balanced brain chemistry. 
We need a garrison over our hearts and our minds precisely because anxiety is a spiritual issue at its root. Whatever has your heart has you. Is that fair to say? Whatever has your heart has you. For out of the heart flow the issues of life, Proverbs 4.23. And whatever has your mind has you. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23.7. Romans 8. The mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and what? Peace. And so if the heart and mind are precisely where anxiety attacks, then we need a fortified garrison around both so that we might be kept from sin, whether in thought or in desire. And that is precisely what we're promised in this verse. We we can't forget, we must not forget the final phrase of this verse because this makes all the difference. We know where this peace comes from. It's from God. We know what we're, what we're going to do to get it. I'll try that again. I'll try the whole, the whole conclusion again. So that's precisely what we're promised in this verse. But oh, we mustn't forget that final phrase because this makes all the difference. We know where this peace comes from. It's from God. And we know what we're to do to get it. We're to pray with thanksgiving. But where is this peace found? Look at the final three words of our passage. The peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And this makes all the difference in the world. People search for peace in the attainment of sinful pleasures. If I had enough of my pet sin, if I could glut the appetites of my soul on everything that I take pleasure in, then I'll find peace. I search for peace in between the pages of a self-help book. If I could just understand how to talk myself into it. They search for peace in the bottom of a bottle of pills or in the bottom of a bottle of alcohol. Well, I'm not going to find it. So I'm just going to deaden my pain and hopefully there'll be peace for me there. They search for peace within the dark cavernous recesses of their own corrupt hearts. Some even search for peace in their own good works, laboring for for the good of others, thinking that that will bring them rest for their conscience. They know God's standard of perfect righteousness is something they could never attain that gnaws and eats at their conscience and says, I'm not good enough. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to be. I'm I'm going to keep at it. I'm going to help as many old ladies across the street. I'm going to feed as many hungry. I'm going to hold as many doors. I'm going to do as many works of service that I can do. I'm going to try to be a good person so that maybe my good will outweigh my bad. But peace is found in none of those places. None of them. True peace. The peace of God. The peace which surpasses all comprehension. The peace that can truly and effectively guard our hearts and minds from anxiety is in Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus alone. Some of you, as you listen to God's word preached, some of you begin to despair. If that's the standard, say to yourselves, oh, if only that were possible for me. If only I could lay hold of a life of peace free from anxiety. But it can't be. 
I've tried. I've tried for years, but it's impossible, at least for me. I tell you, yes, it is impossible outside of Christ. Apart from a vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ entered into by grace through faith alone, none of this is possible. Jesus himself said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But in Christ, friend, it is possible. In union with Christ, this peace is attainable. And as you search your heart, as you hear the word of God preached, if you find yourself destitute of this peace, friend, it may be because you are destitute of this Christ. You don't get one without the other. There's no peace without Jesus and no Jesus without peace. There is no such thing as peace outside of Jesus Christ. So if you, as you hear God's word, you find stirring within you a sort of holy attraction to this life of peace. If you find yourself saying, oh, I want that so badly, do I want that peace? And I bid you to come to Christ in whom all peace is found. The Bible calls him the Lord of peace. Second Thessalonians 3.16. Elsewhere, it says he himself is our peace. Ephesians 2.14. And then in another place, we're told that it is the peace of Christ that is to rule within our hearts. Colossians 3.15. And Jesus himself said, we said it, we read it before. These things I have spoke to you, I have spoken to you so that in me, you may have peace in me. Friend, do not make the mistake of thinking that you can have the peace of God before you have had peace with God through repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would have the peace of God this day, make peace with God this very moment by turning from your sins, by abandoning all hope of commending yourself to God on the basis of your own righteousness and by putting your trust entirely, your trust for, for acceptance with God entirely in the righteousness of another in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life of obedience that you and I were commanded to live, but failed to live, and who died the substitutionary death on the cross that you were required to die, but you could not survive, and who rose again in victory over sin and death the third day, and now freely promises eternal life to all who would come to him. What could be stopping you from laying hold of such a glorious, lovely, compassionate Savior? What could hold you back from taking hold of so great and so free a salvation? What sinful pleasures are worth forfeiting eternal life and peace for? What doubts are worth treasuring when the one fairer than the fairest of 10,000 smiles with outstretched arms and says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Sinner, lay them down. Enter through the narrow gate. Come to Christ and live. And to my brothers and sisters, those who along with me by grace have fled to Christ for life and peace. He is where true peace is to be found. Even in a pandemic. 
Pursue this peace. Fight for it. Ever and only here in Christ. And in worshipful, dependent, confident prayer to our Father through him. And be anxious for nothing. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would seal that word to our heart. Holy Spirit, that you would minister the benefit of that text that you yourself have written and inspired to the souls, the hearts of, of those in whom you dwell. And I pray that, that by the, the sovereign command of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that the Holy Spirit of God, Spirit, that you would blow over those within the sound of my voice and for those who don't know you, who don't know Christ, who have not bowed the knee, Spirit, that you would open their eyes to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, that you would give the grace of, of the new birth, the miracle of regeneration, and that people would lay down their burden and find peace in Christ for the first time, even today. Father, strengthen your people. Give us grace to endure. Make us into those whom we must be for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.